Welcome to Codex Rex. I am your host, Dux. And I'm your co-host, Tyler. We have this podcast about video game history, and together we meet up, well, like once a month. And Something we, like that. Yeah, what do we talk about, Tyler? Uh, so we talk about video game history and video game culture, and particularly we focus on how at least so far, how video games are made and the historical repercussions of video games being made. Um, particularly, we like to talk... We, we lately have been doing deep dives into video game series and how, how they were made and sort of the background info on that stuff. Yeah, and we kind of always went into a personal perspective of the people that were involved with it, um, right. which, which I really liked, which is going to change today. But let's not get into that. Let's get into Interesting. how you are today. How's, how's your day been? Uh, things are okay. So, um, it's, uh, some of you know that I teach and this is the time of the semester where things are a little bit crazy for me and, uh, couple that with the fact that my brother is in visiting. And so, um, it's been really nice to hang out with him. And, uh, we were painting some Warhammer figurines the other night and he was like, man, I don't think I've painted a Warhammer figure in like 10 years this is awesome. <laughs> it is, right? Hi, man. Yeah. A friend of mine got me back into it too. Like when, like the first time we started painting again, I, I was inspired mm-hmm. by a friend. And it's so relaxing to to do the Warhammer painting. We talk about it all the time, but it's just good. Guys, if yeah. you ever thought about painting a miniature, just do it. Usually your no- yeah. local games workshop, some advertisement, they will even do right. free courses, at least in Germany. I don't know how it is in the US. Yeah, it depends on the place. I would also say that... Um, Note that while I love Warhammer 40k, uh, I am completely, I have no wool pulled over my eyes regarding how it is incredibly expensive and how overpriced it is compared to other games. So like, if you're just thinking about painting, there are super cheap alternatives to be able to paint stuff that you, you know, you can spend, you can get a mini for $2 if you really want, you know, and the same thing with Games Workshop might cost you $35. Absolutely. But Don't fall, the, fall for the corporate ploy. They make the money. <laughs> Just decide if you like painting first. And I think what I like about, I think what I like about painting is uh, a buddy of mine and I were talking and it's just the, it's the, the cathartic, like, permanence of creation. Like, <laughs> we have all these things in our lives that are like these big amorphous you know, projects we're working on, but you can just sit down and be like, huh, yeah, I painted that weird alien today and it looks really cool and I'm going to put it on the shelf. There it yeah, is. Nice. You know, and you so can look at it. If if one would like to contact us, like to maybe suggest an episode theme or something else, how would one do that? Well, first off, um, I guess we should talk about where to find us. So I'm on Twitch three days a week, um, typically Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays around 7 p.m. Pacific time. Also, you could pop by the Discord for my particular um, um, streaming channel. I'm Vegan Tyler on Twitch. Or you could send me an email at vegantylerttv at gmail.com. If you have feedback or episode suggestions or things you'd like to see, feel free to hit us up. So those are three different ways. You could contact me on stream, you could contact us in the Discord, or you could send me an email. Nice. You can usually meet me on Tyler's Discord, which would be the best way to contact me and talk about anything you want. I will talk back to you if you want it or not. (laughs) Of course. Would you like to get into the episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, let's just jump into it. Let's get started.
what do you got for me this week? Okay, so first off, today we're going to take a bit of a step back. But remember, this is still a video game history podcast. But okay. it's, it's going to take a bit to reveal itself why it is. But we will, we will see. I gotcha. So we start our story today in 1830. So okay. 200 years ago. And we are in the English county of Wiltshire, which is right between Bristol and London. So a bit west of London. It's closer to Bristol, though. Okay. And in this year, a man was born, and he was called Robert Henry Codrington. And he's born as the son of a clergyman, so a man of the church. As you might know, yet... Okay. <laughs> I, I told you, it's, it's going to take a bit. <laughs> um, as you might know, um, in Great Britain, there's a certain branch of the Christian church, which is the Anglican church where the, the king is the head of the church, the head of the religion. And mm-hmm. it also was common in countries that were under British influence. Codrington grows up to be such an Anglican Christian. And due to his father's close affiliation with the church, he becomes a man of God as well. He, um, and not just that, at Wadham College, he graduates in theology and he becomes a priest. He's a priest. Okay. If you're a priest in the Anglican Church, you will serve under a bishop. And Codrington, he served under a man called Hobhouse. And Hobhouse was the bishop of Oxford. We have reached the year 1857 by now. So Codrington is 27 years old. He's a priest at 27. Okay. So he's joined the priesthood. He's 27 years old. We're in the 1800s. Okay. And now something happens in this story that will then lead to something that's important for video game history. And this is going to be a a big leap, but you will see. Okay. So Great Britain at the moment was committing to a grand project, which was colonization. They were colonizing the world. And they were also, like Codrington's boss, Hobhouse, he was declared the first bishop of Nelson in New Zealand. And they both traveled to Polynesia. Okay. Because Hobhouse was bishop and Codrington would serve as a priest, as a missionary under him in 1860. But what does this have to do with video game (laughs) history, you might ask? Oh, you just wait. It's going to happen. Give me a second. Okay. (laughs) The Anglican missionary, Robert Henry Codrington, worked in Norfolk. It's kind of an island east of Australia from 1867 onwards. And his job was to spread Christianity and civilization as, I don't know, colonization was kind of sure. kind of stupid. As um, you did in the 1800s. <laughs> did in the 1800s. And Codrington was sent there to run a school, but he had a different approach to being a missionary than most other Christians that are um, there because he just took on all kinds of professions that you could do. In a, in, a, in a village of indigenous people. He was a multi-talented craftsman. He would work as a cook, as a designer. He worked as a stonemason and built houses for the people. He learned how to print books and how to take photographs. He used all kinds of new technology to become affiliated with the people. He wanted to, to missionize them, um, to, to Christianize them by becoming part of them and making them connect to him. And he also learned how to play the harmonium, which is kind of a tiny piano. It's pretty cool. Okay. So I will say, um, at least from what I understand about, well, you know, missions of that type in the 1800s. So I will say that, like, in, in, in depending on whether or not they're trying to convert someone to Christianity or whether it's already an established, uh, re- you know, 
settlement or whatever, typically people would go to the clergy for different matters, you know, over time. And so they would often see the clergy as some official answer on a problem they may be having or a dispute or, um, you know, a lot of marriages back then were sanctioned specifically by churches. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I can see, you know, the whole like, oh, he learned all these different things and learned all these skills totally comports with what I know about clergy in the 1800s. Yeah, absolutely. And he would have been a person of influence. So because right. he came there with a resource machine behind him that would feed him um, knowledge and um, resources if he required them. Not very fast because it was the 1850s and they, he was on an island alone. But um, yeah, he was the missionary for these people. And the Europeans have been around this area, which was called Melanesia, for more than 100 years when Codrington was there. But in their arrogance, which Europeans had a lot of, few Europeans had actually used their time to work alongside the Melanesian people, but they just tried to rule them. And Codrington was different about that. Um, He tried to work along them. Here, there's a quote by him. One of the first duties of a missionary is to try to understand the people among whom he works, um, which was his main Hmm. principle. And during his years at the mission school, he gained intricate knowledge of the Melanesian people, including why they are relevant to this podcast. To figure this out, what, 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 what causes this relevance, we have to move back a bit more in time. Um, so, but we'll return to Codrington, don't worry. And a bit more in okay. time means we have to move back 5,000 years. Hold the fucking phone. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So we actually, so it's 3,500 BC. Okay. And there's some people that live in, in Taiwan, what is now known okay. as Taiwan. And they, there's a whole lot of islands in the Pacific that will be summarized under the term of Polynesia. And these people from Taiwan, they will move out over the entire Pacific into, this, into these, all of these islands that will be referred to as Polynesia. And these seafaring people will be described as Austronesians. And okay. These people originated from Taiwan and they spread out from Madagascar to Polynesia overseas. And what these people shared was a common language. So there was people from Madagascar up to the, they traveled up to the Hawaii to the Americas, which is a huge distance by sea. But for some that reason, is a crazy distance. Yeah. they had a similar language origin and language is the point we're getting to. And there's a lot we know about these people that we discovered through the tireless work of historians and anthropologists and archaeologists. But as we know, a lot of things get lost in time. And so the Austronesians still remain in mystery in many aspects. Hmm. One thing we do know, though, is we know some of their language. And especially one little word that is relevant for this podcast. And I wonder if you know it. Okay. I don't. (laughs) It's mana. Oh, of course. Of course. This came up. Yeah. Yes, okay. it did. In a recent um, episode. Do you know which color mana is? Oh, it's always blue. It's always it has blue. to be blue. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you know that it's blue? Because it's just how, you know, in it's every game ever, it's blue. Mana is blue. It's just, that's just how it is. Where, yeah. do you, where do you know mana from? Video games, of course. Yeah, it's from video <laughs> games. Or from Magic the Gathering, right? That's also true. Yeah. 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 So gaming in general. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, at what, as what would you describe mana? What's mana? Although I, well, 
I would also say that in Magic, there are different colors of mana. Mm, yeah, that's not blue. Only one of it is blue. Right, that's true. And there is colorless mana. How would you describe mana? So it's like a magical your magical energy that you can use to spend on spells or um, to cast your abilities that are like, I don't know, magical in some way. Yeah. And for those of you still wondering why mana is relevant to a video game history podcast... It is one of the most relevant terms, and especially the most used terms in all kinds of role-playing games, or games that are related to fantasy lore. Mm -hmm. Although I would say, like, Dungeons & Dragons uses something a little bit different. They use spell slots. It absolutely does, yeah. Uh, um, that's, that, that's a huge difference, yeah. But I would say that, like, that's just to pull out the most popular category. But, like, yeah, to... Mana itself as a concept is so ingrained in video gaming that I'm not even sure I've ever thought about why it's called that or why it exists. Yeah, it's a it, it's an established term. You don't right. have to question it. Yes, of course. But I have <laughs> but I have actually wondered for a long time where it comes from, but then never just I never followed the thought. And for this episode right. I decided to do it, to follow the thought and figure out where mana comes from. And now we're doing it. And it comes from Polynesian. Awesome. It's a word invented by the Austronesians, and it's used in, in exactly this region. It, 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 it exists in Hawaii. It exists in um, New Zealand. It exists in Madagascar. It's a word that's commonly known and has a similar meaning in all of these cultures. So this, huh. this word was spread out through the Pacific as the Austronesians spread out through its waters. And its true meaning it, it's its original true meaning has actually been lost. Interesting. Okay. There is a Chinese linguist called Robert A. Blust, who is the expert if it comes to the Austronesian languages. And he argues that the word originally must have meant something like powerful wind or lightning hmm. or storm, because it still has that meaning in several Austronesian languages. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, that kind of fits, right? With With like a powerful force. Right. right. It's power, because it is. Right. Even in fantasy, it gives you power, gives you strength to cast spells. There's another person, his name is Aramoroi, and he's a pastor and a theologian from the island of Makira, which is east of New Zealand. And he wrote a paper at the University of Otago in New Zealand about how mana still has relevance in indigenous religions in the Pacific. According to him, mana has religious meaning in such a way that it describes something powerful, but unseen. Hmm, interesting. Okay. So now we have the, the, the evidence or the indicators that the word mana has its origins describing powerful things, even supernatural ones. Right. But how did it become the single most prevalent term in video game culture? It's a question, because that, that's a far way to go from 2000 BC to, to today us video game culture yeah that's quite a leap i mean granted you know uh media and culture and you know artists in general are always inspired by something and it and it, you know it, you can't just have an artist uh make something in a vacuum so it's not surprising to me that this has like long historical roots because that's drawn from all the time but i am absolutely fascinated how we got to this point given how old this word and its meaning is oh you wait for it this is going to be fun okay so 
When the Europeans slammed into the Pacific in the 18th century via James Cook, the famous James Cook, and his amazing journey, they took a long time to understand how people separated by miles of ocean could share a similar, similar language. Like, they were confused about it, but, but as Europeans also were kind of arrogant, they were just like, hmm. Okay. And and they just brushed it away. <laughs> like, okay, I guess this is a thing. Um, where's the money? Um, <laughs> yeah, where do you guys keep your gold? Um, could you tell yeah. me where your precious metals are? Cool. You know where they are? Can you go get those for me or I'll kill you? Because, yeah. I don't care what language you speak because the only language I speak is money and I want more of it. So... As the European explorers like to do, they just drew random lines onto maps to categorize people. But the Austronesian language and its dialects were used from Madagascar to Hawaii, as we said. And sadly, most Europeans completely ignored this phenomenon. Codrington didn't. Hmm. He noticed. And because he got to know the Melanesians so well, he wrote a book about his experience during his retirement when he came back home to Britain. And the book is called The Melanesians' Studies in Their Anthropology and Folklore which makes Codrington an anthropologist, hmm. not just a missionary. And it was published in 1891. Um, let's read a bit in this book. I have an, um, an excerpt. The Melanesian mind is entirely possessed by the belief in a supernatural power or influence called almost universally mana. This is what works to affect everything that is beyond the ordinary power of man outside the common processes of nature. It is present in the atmosphere of life, attaches itself to persons and to things, and is manifested by results which can only be ascribed to its operation. The word is common, I believe, to the whole Pacific. It is a power or influence not physical and in a way supernatural, but it chews itself in physical force or in any kind of power or excellence which a man possesses. All Melanesians' religion consists, in fact, in getting this mana for oneself or getting it used for one's benefit. That is absolutely fascinating. Okay. Yeah. So while Britain kept committing colonial atrocities overseas, Codrington was back in Victorian Europe. And I would argue that we wouldn't have mana in pop culture without Codrington, because, and especially not without his book. It was a huge success at the time, and there's a reason for that. Not only was Codrington an undisputable expert in this field, because there was no piece of work like this at the time, nothing. And additionally, the European intellectuals, the entire European intellectualism, was going through a rediscovery of history at the time. Mm -hmm. And they were also going through a rediscovery of their own identity. The reason for that is that contemporary archaeologists... Um, during this time, continuously discovered proof in the Near East that there were civilizations predating the world described by the Hebrew Bible. And so people were like, mm, maybe Christianity isn't the center of everything. So what I'm finding fascinating here to me is that his book did so well because Granted, I'm not an expert on this, so don't take this as like a, a fact, but the kind of books that would be popularized in that time period of other cultures that would sell well, <laughs> of all those qualifiers, are typically the kind that would say, hey, I went to this place 
and I saw these savages, and here's how crazy and kooky they are, and this is why we are better. And then people would buy those books that say, yes, I want to read this book that says I'm arbitrarily better. And that those kind of expeditions, with quotes, were often funded to go and take things from indigenous peoples and bring them back and put them on display or to tell like crazy and wild stories. So not to say that scientific advancement was not occurring and that there weren't people like you're discussing, right? Like Robert here, but like that, that to me is fascinating that a book that was a more, not to say that he's neutral. He still went there on a mission to try and convert people to Christianity, but that like, I'm going to actually learn about these people and what they care about is kind of interesting to me that it sold well. Yeah. Um, it sold well for a reason that might get close to what you think it might have sold well. Okay. So as, as we said, the, the intellectuals of the time were going through a renaissance and it was also because texts from all over the world were getting translated and Christian culture started to look like it was the youngest and dullest of them all. And there was a whole pantheon, of much older and much more beautiful religions all of a sudden. Hmm. So the the world was bigger than previously believed, and not just in terms of sight, but also in terms of history and spirituality. And this is important because Codrington's book was also about spirituality. And there was a movement during the time, uh, especially among intellectuals, that was big. People were starting to question the major role of Christianity, and if it was supposed to have this role in this world, maybe there was something bigger that was supposed to connect us all. Some esoteric energy, maybe. You can imagine that occultism among intellectuals was mm-hmm. huge at the time. Oh, yeah, totally. And you must like, like just think of persons that were created, especially during 1890. Personas like, I don't know if you ever heard of Alistair Crowley. Of course, yeah. Who's like a legend if it comes to occultism. He lived. It was his heyday. He was just spouting nonsense, mixing up cultures from all over the world, pretending to make up new religions, having his huge orgies. Of course, <laughs> and of course. He, and then there was an, another man, he's called Austin Osman Spare, who kind of invented his own kind of magic, like sigil magic that is still used today in cults and religions. He was kind of the inventor of these sigils you can still see in, in fantastic literature. And also Arthur Conan Doyle, a big author that everybody knows. He was a huge occultist. He loved everything about it. And you now have this European intellectual scene consisting of wealthy communists and aristocrats that abandon the dogmata Christianity offered them for hundreds of years, and they start looking for a proto-human religion, something mm-hmm. that comes down from the heavens and tells them, this is the force all humans carry inside of them, with no matter where they are from, we are all connected by it. And along comes this book by Codrington. The singular book. If you guys could see the smirk on my face, because I'm like, <laughs> of course. Uh, you, some guy went to this cool place and learned about their culture, and you mean to tell me that Europeans looked at that and went, huh, this actually means that we've been right this entire time. <laughs> yeah. You know what this book says? We're the fucking best, baby. <laughs> What a lens to view the world through. <laughs> Absolutely. And it also worked because Codrington, he was an established intellectual. He uh-huh. was an old priest. He was from the elite. So, so he was credible. And um, he described this power of mana that is exactly what these people were looking for. They just wanted to have it because Christianity was out of the window. It didn't work for them anymore. And 
maybe this mana is this the same as those primal forces described by other cultures because they were finding all of these religion that religions that were fi- describing similar things right and reading reading up on the thought process of these people made me realize uh, something interesting which kind of relates to today is that apparently we humans always were prone for silly nonsense <laughs> oh, of course well well packaged into important sounding words <laughs> so Conspiracies were kind of always a, a thing that was cool, and and humans really enjoy to see patterns everywhere. Oh, our brains are hardwired to see patterns, right? Yeah, like, I think so too. You know, uh, what's that Simpsons episode where he somebody sells him a, an amulet that wards away tigers or something, and they're like, that's nonsense. And he's like, well, I don't see any tigers around here, do you? Right? <laughs> Or like, shit, I was just walking down to the farmer's market the other day and some woman tried to sell me a bunch of healing crystals, right? Like, I wanted to get my mail and someone walked by me. This is literally yesterday. Someone walked by me and went, hey, by the way, you can cure coronavirus with honey, ginseng, and ginger. And I went, uh, thanks? Andrea goes, uh, no, you can't. That's a lie because she's much, you know direct than i do and they get they went well yeah sure you can look it up on youtube and she goes yes i go to youtube to find out all of my scientific information and they just babbled something and went down the street right we've always been this way we will always be this way absolutely we can't avoid Um, it (laughs) but, but you also must see the appeal of this because you all of a sudden have access to to knowledge that wasn't there before and you've all of a sudden you see these patterns and you think like, man, we, we now we start to get how the world really works. And in Maybe. doing so, you have power over it. So when I, you yeah. feel helpless and you feel like you can't do anything about the weight of the world, and suddenly someone tells you that if you arrange some rocks on your kitchen table and say some weird words that you're going to affect the world and you can cast spells and shit, like... Why doesn't that sound fucking awesome, right? Because now you have the power to change things about your life, right? So I totally get it. I totally get it. So now all of these occultists, they start to implement mana into their little sects and cults and Mm -hmm. covens and whatnot. But we still have not reached gaming culture. We're still in in the early 1900s. Uh, Personal computers, as we know them, won't be around for another 80 years and mana would have to be more persistent to make it to that and it lived on in european academia for quite some time and not just on a linguistic level as codrington introduced it also as just a word but also on a spiritual level the occultism it kind of it, it, it developed and it would become far more important about 50 years later in the 1950s Hmm. But first, we we talk about someone that was born in 1907. Okay, so it's yeah. so pause. So it stuck around. It it he wrote his book in the uh, in 1891, and then it slowly picked up traction uh, with occultists uh, in the early 1900s, and it became sort of like I think maybe I missed how it got ingrained with the church because they're trying to say, oh look, this this spiritual force has been around for forever, and. How did, how did religious leaders integrate that in? Or was it just occultists? It was just occultists. Because ah, okay. um, what, what was huge during the time and what was started to become huge um, before was, was this concept called deism, 
Oh yes, uh, of course, theism. Um, yeah, Christianity isn't a thing, and um, you you gotta worship something that's greater than it. And Christianity is just a manifestation of the religion that's everywhere. And so the the mana was just ingrained in the huge occult sects and groups that were popping up all over Europe. Fun fact, a large portion of the United States' founding fathers were not Christians. They were actually deists, or um, a lot of them were unaffiliated as well. But deism was kind of like the big thing back then, although that's like late 1700s, early 1800s that we're talking. But But not because they were like huge anti-Christians. It was just the hip thing to be. Right. So in 1907, there's a man is born, which is called Mercia Eliade. And he's, um, you don't have to know the spelling, it's okay. He was born in Romania, and he'd grow up to be a philosopher. Okay. And also a religious scholar. And of course, an occultist. Specifically, he was into shamanism. Shamanism is like you go into these ecstatic um, um, visions, and you, you kind of connect to your inner spirits by going nuts a bit um, in in slightly disrespectful words towards shamanism. And while teaching at a university in France around 1954, he wrote two books that would be the pillars of his master philosophy. The first book was called The Myth of the Eternal Return. And the second one was Patterns in Comparative Religion. Interesting. According to my sources, these books basically come down to him claiming that all humans shared a direct link to the divine. But because this sacred connection was so unfathomable, humans would reshape it with their different cultures to make it conceivable. So they'd kind of create different religions to dilute this divine connection, to not go crazy. Huh. Okay. That's very Lovecraftian. (laughs) Is it absolutely Lovecraftian? Lovecraft is a is is a child of this time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I thought I thought of Lovecraft a lot during this research, and within his theory, he specifically uses mana as this actual gain of power through the connection to the divine. So mana is the word that he uses, and he cites Codrington How because Codrington's book is an anthropology. In, in hegemonic force in anthropology for the Melanesian people until today. It's a book that's still read. And Mercia Aliado wanted to create a new discipline of science that would do nothing else but document human spirituality to further understand our common divine connection. He wanted to figure it out. Where is the connection? Can we find it? Can we scientifically find it? Yeah, this was always a big thing to see if they cuz the the blending of science and religion has been a thing for a long time right yeah. and there was the big push to try and show i mean shit there's still a big push in religious circles to to use science to prove the supernatural right like that they always want to show that using scientific language that supernatural forces exist right and so yeah. That's, I always find that that melding of these two things that may not necessarily go together uh, to be very fascinating from like a cultural standpoint. Yeah, but it's also because the scientific method gives you legitimacy. It does, exactly. Assuming that it is used correctly, yeah. there are ways to abuse scientific results. So One mistake in the scientific method that Eliade did was that according to him, even before he did his science, the existence of the divine connection was a fact already. Mm, he started with that assumption. 
Okay. Yeah. And apparently his ideas found some resonance in 1956 as he was hired in the University of Chicago. Hmm. He went to America. That's a big step in the right direction for us. Right. And within his, like he, he founded this so-called divinity school that was just about this, finding the divine connection. And he became the predominant force of esoteric science. And there was an academic journal that he put out and an encyclopedia. And he used to teach students and he created an anthology of readings for students that they had to read, which also included Codrington's book about the Melanesian people and mana. I just want to pause real fast. The 50s in academia must have been a fucking blast. Wait for it. I mean, (laughs) uh, you know, like literally they would be like, Oh, you synthesized acid in a lab? Okay, yeah, we'll let you and your students go just drop acid as long as you write up some academic reports on it, right? Like, nuts. Just, like, do whatever the fuck you want in the name of academia and Dude, we'll just see what Eliado, happens. Eliado was at the right place at the right time. <laughs> America in the 50s was the place to be if you were a crazy academic dude that just wanted to have a cult i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah so eliado spent a lot of money printing these paperback pamphlets spreading his idea of the divine connection and his theories and themes across the country and the concept of mana that we are tracking so thoroughly through the time reached the right place at the right time which is which is america in the 50s Mm -hmm. and you, you must imagine, like, to go a bit further into what America in the 50s was like, this was the time um, of young people that were completely tired of the status quo and in a different way that we know it today. Because this was after the war, but this was also after huge changes in, in American culture because Americans rise to power and um, had, had left um, thousands of people behind. And there were... All these people were exploring North Frontiers. There were frontiers. There was all this new technology and all this new science coming in, and they were exploring new things physically and spiritual. Spiritual. It was the time of the civil rights movement, which was a big cultural game changer. It was the time of drug gurus like Timothy Leary, which you just referenced. That's who I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the time of the, um, the People's Temple, which would later be known as a Jonestown. Um, yeah, yeah, a huge yeah. cult that committed um, mass suicide. So all kinds of crazy ideas were going on. The Beat Generation was a huge thing. They were just like Ginsberg and Kerouac. They were traveling through the country looking for meaning and fulfillment in a country that was apparently completely lacking it. And counterculture was omnipresent. It was everywhere. So Ilyanada's ideas hit exactly the right note for this version of America. Yeah. It was spreading like a wildfire. It was the dawn of the new age movement, as you would call it. The age of Aquarius. <laughs> the dawning of the age of Aquarius. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and this was kind of the peak of the occultism that started in the 1900. And people were figuring out, oh, this world is different. And it was, it, it was getting stronger and stronger. This idea of this, we're leaving this old, weak and sick world behind and finding something new. But right. everybody was just mixing things together and it was a pretty, pretty weird time. It must have been. So, yeah. And this is how Mana reached California, where it would turn into that magical resource that we all have known from childhood on. And to turn this, to turn it into this fantasy cliche, um, Mana required one more thing, though. It required the fantasy genre. In 1965, 
The Origin of All Modern Fantasy was published in the US on paperback. You know what it is? Um, the Origin of All Fantasy. The Hobbit? No, it's before. Yeah, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, especially. I guess it would, would be the 60s, huh? I was like second-guessing myself for a second, but yeah, The Hobbit. Oh, you're right, yeah. That's the origin of all the fantasy we know. I mean, there was things before it, but Tolkien basically founded it by himself. He had inspirations by himself, but that was a huge deal. Sure, he and totally the, took a bunch of stuff from like, you know, history, yeah, he, like historical he just figures took it from and such. Mythology, yeah. yeah. He just stole it. But mythology it, um, is the better he, word, but yes. But he turned it into fiction that was for people to read for, for the common man. Right. And the common woman. And so Lord of the Rings came to paperback and it triggered this movement of world building and literature that would change popular culture forever. So you might see that we are reaching the final stages of this investigation because we things are combining, brewing together in the US already. But what do we want to know again, though? We want to know how did Mana enter the video game world? And for this, we need to know one more thing. I, th I think we need to... First, we need to kind of draw a Venn diagram <laughs> okay, with, with, with different groups for this. Now, we're imagining and, a whiteboard in our mind, and there's Docs, yes. and he's got his huge marker, and he's walking up to the board, and he's drawing circles. And the first circle is people that are into the fantasy genre. That's the big first circle. Then the next circle is people that create video games. And the third circle would be people that are affiliated with esoteric practices. And these three circles have to kind of overlap to create mana in video games. So now we just need to track how that happened. And we could just speculate on how these groups might have overlapped, but that would be just that, speculation. What we will do is something else. I will introduce you to three men that lived around that time, and each of them belonged to a different group in the Venn diagram. Fantasy okay. genre... An esoteric group and video game creator. The first one will be a neo-paganist, the second one will be an author, and the third one will be a computer engineer. And once I'm done with this little exposition, we will do some magic of our own, <laughs> and then we will, um, it, and then that will leave us enlightened about the origins of mana. Uh, are you ready for this? How much mana is the spell going to cost? A, lo a lot of mana. Oh, okay. A lot of mana. Okay, the first one, the neo-paganist. His name is Isaac Bonewitz. Isaac Bonewitz was born in 1949 at the and at the University of California, Berkeley. He got an he got an actual bachelor's degree in magic. What? <laughs> Shut the fuck up! He the, got a bachelor's only... <laughs> degree in fucking magic. Like, are we talking like David Blaine magic, or he can cast actual fucking spells? No, I. I, I okay, so. This is a thing that he claims that he has, and he has one source for it. There's no document about it that I found because we are sourcing this podcast. Well, of he course. says that he got a, he got a bachelor's degree in magic from the California of Berkeley, and there's one newspaper article in the New York Times that just says man gets bachelor's degree in magic in the University of California, which I think is an okay source, but not the best. But at people, at least people believed him. And believed him until the end of his life that he has this degree because he would become huge, a huge deal in the occult world and in the gaming world too. So I will say it is not that unheard of for universities to accept, uh, I'm going to use this weirdly, but like ad hoc degrees, like hyper-focused things that you've put together that maybe 
maybe the university doesn't offer. So like, I know someone who did like a bachelor's in meditation and mindfulness at a university. And that wasn't like a program they had, you know? Yeah. He also claims it to be a self-made diploma. And what I believe it to be, which also shows in how he used it later on, is that he just studied esoteric texts by all kinds of philosophers, like Mercia Elenade or Codrington, and thereby got an expert in all kinds of occult and magical practices, which he would also believe in, but he, the letters that he writes, texts that he wrote, always have a bit of self-irony about it. So he's not too serious about his, his degree. He's, he's, he seems to be a man of humor. Okay. So this is less like, well, now I have a degree in magic, and that's how you know that I'm a sanctioned wizard, right? He, he's more like, you're saying he's coming at this more from like an academic kind of standpoint? Like, oh, I studied all these things and... You know. yeah, he knows all kinds of New Age scholars okay. and all kinds of occultist scholars and has read their literature. Like he's a, he's, a, he's a weird philosopher. I am going to, for the rest of this episode, imagine this man is a wizard. I just want you to know. Oh, he's actually a druid. He joined a druid society. He shut is. the yeah. fuck up. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> he joined um, the American druid, like one of American druid societies while he was studying and he remained a druid until the end of his life. And Okay. What, he actually, what he actually did most of his life as a druid is that he defended religious freedom. And he, he had kind of his civil rights movement of his own, trying to defend the predominant position of the major religions in America and saying that people can believe in whatever they want to and nobody can take that from them. And that's what he preached when he, when he got political. Hmm. But he also, he wasn't just political, he also he he was an influential entity within the entire neo paganist movement. Like when he died, he died um, in the nineties. Okay. Um, pe people mourned him for a long time because he defended the Wiccan religion for for a long time, which is still important in California. Sure. And I would also say it has. I mean, it's everywhere at this point. Yeah. So and he also he 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 defended the Satanist Church in its legitimacy and he he will speak about these these cults that were forming up during this time well that's what's fascinating not to derail you here but that's what's fascinating about you know the idea of freedom of religion and the current satanist church is is mostly from what i understand uh mostly atheists who use the church as a way to uh, like showcase like hypocrisy. So they'll say, oh, we want to put a religious statue in a federal building or something like that. And then they'll take it to court and say, okay, well, if you're going to put a statue of Jesus in there, then we should be allowed to put a statue of the devil in there because that's religious yeah. freedom. You don't get special treatment, right? So yeah, they, they use it as a, as a trolling tool. Yes, yeah. And so through that, high level uh legal trolling we'll call it they keep that they try to keep that separation of church and state you know in that way but when yeah. you go the church of satan you know it seems very scary to um yeah, call them absolutely. the pearl clutchers so my heavens so not only did he, he he wrote a few books 
And he wrote a book about how to practice magic because he studied all these scholars. So he knew how to do actual magic or so he claimed. And his first book about how to cast magic was called Real Magic. And he published it and was quite famous. And I recommend looking these up because they have this artwork in them that always reminds me of this Lovecraftian Pulp Fiction, um, which looks really awesome. Like like the entire book could be an installment of a Call of Cthulhu campaign. And not only did he write books on the rules of magic practices, he also um, went to like neo-pagan conferences and conventions promoting his idea. And what he also did is he went to gaming conventions. Not gaming conventions for computer games, but sure. gaming conventions for Dungeons and Dragons. For people that were playing role-playing games. So, it's a little bit of backstory on Dungeons and Dragons type stuff. When you used to go, like in like the 80s, right? If you wanted to go do, go to a, like a, I don't know, a convention that was doing Dungeons and Dragons, modules would be set up almost like competitively. Like you would go and like meet up with other people and you'd all be in a group together. But there was like a, from what I understand, there was like a scoring system and it would be like playing competitive D and D at the table. And these were like a big hit, especially if you got into D and D, but had no one to play with. Right. Yeah. He actually wrote a supplement for his real magic book that was called authentic thaumatogy. And I ordered this book. You own it? I'm, I'm, I'm going to own it in the next few days. I'm going to show it to you once it shows up. And it's a book um, that tells people how to introduce magic into games. How you could make real magic and a, a game system. I'm just fucking imagining this convention, right? And here's all these, you know, geeky guys. And they're all sitting at this table. And this old wizened man in a bunch of furs, like, walks up with his druid staff. And he's like, hey, kid. You like what you see there on the table? How'd you like to cast some real fucking spells? Let me show you the way. You ever see this shit? And he opens it up and it's just like a bunch of fucking tinctures. And he's like, come on down. Back alley behind the convention center. I'll show you where the real fucking magic is. (laughs) You want to see my supplement? Let me show you how you can add real magic to your campaign. Um, I I imagined him the same, but I read up about him a bit more. And... (laughs) And the rules that he writes, he's a good writer. It's humor, it's full of humor and fun, and he understands what role-playing is about if it's not competitive. He understands the acting and the role-playing part, part, which which occultism always was a lot about. And I don't want to call him an occultist because I think paganists are very, very, very strict about that they are not just some occultists, that they are practicing real religions to find themselves, but also always a lot about a big act, being able to cast magic by looking like you do. And he was he was good about that. And the supplement that he wrote was actually published by Chaosium, which is the publisher that also published Call of Cthulhu. Interesting. It was published in 1978. Wow. So he gamified magical practices. So this is number one. This okay. is our esoteric person. Now number two, the author, Larry Neven. He was born in 1938, and he studied math and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from Washbourne University in Topeka in Kansas. Neven wrote dozens of science fiction and fantasy books, which he got many prizes for, but the books important for this story are called Not Long Before the End and The Magic Goes Away. Fantasy stories in which wizards use a depletable resource called mana 
mm. to cast magic. And he and this was published in 1969. So let's get the timeline straight. Right. 56, Ilyanada shows up. He starts spreading his pamphlets, spreading the concept of mana that was int introduced by Coddington. Twelve years later, Larry Neven uses it in a book. And during the... And 1969 was also the year that Bonewitz was currently attending the University of California, studying the intricacies of magic and becoming a neo-Druid, as mm -hmm. he would call himself. And it is unclear... For me, it's unclear how Neven must have stumbled over the term mana, though. I tried to figure it out. I even wrote him an email and didn't get an answer yet. Uh, but in all of his interviews, he never mentions mana, even though he's always credited for being the first one to mention it in a book. Hmm. Like the first person to ever mention it in a fantasy book. I'm really interested in how he got inspired to use it. And he's still alive, uh, which is why I tried to contact him. But uh, he must be a busy man because he's a famous fantasy science fiction author. You tried to contact him? Yeah, yeah, I tried to write what? it. What? Oh, man, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So the most important part of this is he, as well as Bonewitz, got it from somewhere and turned it both into fiction. Mm -hmm. And now to number three. Different flavors of fiction, though. Different flavors of fiction, yeah. Right. One gam gamified it, one turned it into a fantasy book. Okay. And the last one is the computer engineer, Robert Allen Koenigke. He was enrolled in a computer engineering course at the University of Oklahoma between 1980 and 1981. And because he was pretty good with computers, the system administrators often invited him to hang out and play games, especially one certain game that was called Rogue. Ah, of course, Rogue. Yeah. Yes, the Rogue, the dungeon crawling RPG that is completely designed in ASCII and will, and this game will name an entire genre of games called roguelikes because yep. they are like the game rogue or rogue lights which is yeah. a lighter version of a roguelike and i have seen literal arguments over where the line of roguelike and rogue light is i think the most hardcore gatekeepers say that it also has to be an ascii graphics <laughs> like the entire mechanic has to be copied only th there can only be changes to the lore and anything else must be basically the same. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's more or less hardcore arguments about that. Oh, yeah. I, I don't even know I want to go down that rabbit hole because it's... But go ahead. Yeah, I, I just I, I just call everything a roguelike and then let people scream at me. <laughs> people have to be mad about something, right? For, for me, a roguelike is if you go down a dungeon in any kind of way, even if it's a, like a shooter, like Nuclear Throne, mm -hmm. and you have to restart but you still slowly unlock stuff. Right. right, right. That's a roguelike for me. I think a roguelite, in my opinion, is things that let you make the next run easier, right? Yeah. So like you can, maybe you have to start over or maybe you don't have to start over, but then the next time, well, now you've unlocked these new permutations and now you do more damage. And like Hades does it well right like hades yeah. you can literally start buffing your character as you go to make the next run easier but for me also dead cells yeah. is a roguelike yeah. oh man i love which, dead cells which which many people would i don't know break my legs for well guess what they can't break our legs through the internet so not yet not well yet. someday 2020 is <laughs> not over yet yeah. <laughs> and the scientists have unveiled internet leg breaking technology yes Harold, yeah, I've always wanted to break someone's legs through the internet. 
especially if I can't ever see him. Okay, so uh, he was playing rogue with these these nerds in his university that invited him, and he claims that he was completely addicted to the game. But when he later on got a job with the university, his boss prohibited him from using the computers to play games because the only purpose for the machines is to work and not to have fun. Of course. There isn't much about him because he isn't a famous developer now or something. He's just a normal dude. But there's one correspondence by him that I read, like a, like a few emails that was a back and forth between fans that he has. And there he described what happened during that time. So Koenigke, he went on and created his own game that was inspired by Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and it was called Moria. Okay, like the Mines of Moria. And apparently, because he made the and it was exactly like Rogue, but because he made the game himself, he had an easier time hiding it from his boss mm-hmm. um, because he, he, he knew how to move it around so he wouldn't get in trouble. And after a while, he got a little following of people enjoying his game that he was um, was basically one of the first roguelikes, was the first game that was like Rogue. And he was in constant conflict with the people around him that also played the game because he, he gave the game away for free. He didn't sell it. He just wanted to play games with his friends. Sure. And whenever they beat the game, he found out how they did it and he made his game harder. Once he even claimed that he made it so hard that it couldn't be beat anymore, but one of his friends beat it after a week. <sighs> and with a character they called Iggy. So Koenigke took that character. He was so impressed. He took the character and put them into the game as an enemy, called them Evil Iggy. That's and they, fun. And you can still get the game in all kinds of iterations because it still gets developed by, by the community. That's um, really cool. It's like an open think, source kind of thing? Yeah, he like he he made it open source. He just spread it around. He didn't care. He didn't want to make money with this. He 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 kind of claims that he always had this philosophy that games are not for selling, but for sharing. And I think it must have been fun times. Boy, what um, a <laughs> what a different take on video games absolutely. than we have had so far on the podcast, right? Absolutely. That is fascinating. Yeah, and I, I really like that idea that you play games with people to connect to them over the game and yeah. to, to make it a, a, a living process. So uh, I was having a discussion with someone in the Discord recently, and I was talking about how uh, I've been really fascinated by the fact that there are all of these like bootleg games workshop um Basically, I don't want to phrase this. Basically, what people will do is if they're really talented with 3D modeling, they will make 3D models of things that you could proxy in Games Workshop, you know, 40K type games or whatever. And then you can use a 3D printer to print them out. I've mentioned it before in our little opening Mm -hmm. things that I'm super into this, right? And I was saying how cool that I had found this person and that they had gone to school for 3D modeling and now they make a living selling 3D models of things that people then buy and print out. And someone was saying to me like, isn't it fascinating that we've been told our whole life that we, if we're doing something fun, that we need to find a way to make money from it, right? He's like, why can't we just make cool things and enjoy them? Why does it always have to be about money? And I was like- damn, you just slammed me through the desk because that's a really good question. And I'm not saying that I was like, oh, that's what this person should be doing. I was just like proxy proud of them that they took that and did something really neat with it. But what what an interesting question, right? About like, Absolutely. what's the purpose of all these fun things that we make? And not to go down a very long philosophical rabbit hole, but 
is the purpose of art to make money from it, right? Like Thomas Kincaid has made like, you know, he, he or the monolithic entity that, you know, that is pump out like 50 new paintings a year that all get put onto these prints and then everybody's grandma hangs them up, right? Is that less art than someone who spends an entire year making this really fucking weird abstract piece that no one ever looks at, right? Yeah, or this good friend of ours, Nope, who uh-huh. makes beautiful pictures, but he refuses to take money for it, which I admire, yep. because he does it for the art. And that's a good thing to do. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's uh, creation for creation for the purpose of creation. We were just talking about Warhammer miniatures at the beginning of the episode, right? Like, yeah. why does it feel good to paint a model? Because you're making something. And that aspect of making something can be cathartic. So anyway, I'm just really glad to see that this guy was like, why would I ever sell this game? This is for me and my friends and it's supposed to be fun. And I'm just like totally smitten with that. Now, if he turns out later in the episode to be a real douchebag, that's going to suck. But for now, he's got my vote. (laughs) He actually doesn't turn out to be a douchebag. Um, He actually, like he left the company that he was in, but his game kept spreading. And like for 20 years, he wasn't big on the internet or anything. And like when he joined the internet in 2005, that's where I got the email correspondence from. Mm-hmm. He was baffled that his game was kind of famous, like in, in a small internet community because he just Googled it. And mm-hmm. there was like, oh, this is a thing still. I didn't know why. And then he got in contact with people that wanted to get to know him. So he had this email correspondence. How so cool. the thing is, why are we getting to know him though? Because Rogue didn't have mana. It didn't. It wasn't in there. Moria had it though. Mm, I see. And not only this, but Moria's actually the earliest game that I found, and that most sources, I have several sources that also say Moria is the earliest game that they found that has mana in it. It was hmm. first published in 1982. Wow. And he developed it for 10 years. So um, it, it got, because he always kept doing it, he, he, he kept um, further developing it for a long time. And I kind of was like, okay, maybe I can kind of find a manual for the game and maybe I will I will find an explanation because maybe if mana isn't an established term yet, maybe if he mentions mentions it in the manual, he will do like a little little, little subnote like mana is this and this um, and that will reference to where it belongs to because it doesn't belong to the Lord of the Rings. It doesn't show up in the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And so I read the manuals and it's just mentioned like it's an established term. Like everybody knows mana already. It doesn't even have to be explained. And it like it's pop culture already. And it's nineteen eighty. Huh. It's only been twenty-five years. And I I just think it was commonly understood already. Okay, so we now have these huh. three people. And now the question is how do these connect? How do we make the connection to to mana being in today's fantasy world? And now we do the magic trick is that they don't. They, they don't connect and they do connect because this is not a grand conspiracy because we've been talking about conspiracy for a while, but it's not a grand conspiracy that, that we can unravel. This is just human nature. This is, we take things and we make them our own and we shape them and we share them and we spread them. And within a few thousand years, a single word spreads from the Pacific to America and turns into a cultural phenomenon for no reason that we can follow up. Within only another hundred years, it spreads 
over the entire world and when it's virtually unknown in the US in 1955, only 25 years later it is already used by disjoint groups of people as an established term. For the same purpose, yeah. Yeah, and they, they use it in a sort of self-evidence that is super fascinating to me. And there's no clear connection. And that's the point of history, that it's not a clear path, but a vague shape. And I didn't figure out that Bonewitz knew some programmer and they made the first game together. I just found a lot of people that create their own little culture, an aggregate with its own code words, rituals, and quirks. And this isn't an invention. This is a cultural phenomenon and a linguistic process that we can't specifically follow up in. And I think how they got to know the mana will have been similar to how we got to know it. Because we heard it once and we never questioned it. Yeah. And that's how they got it. They heard it and they never questioned it. Because it was introduced to them in such a self-evident established manner that there was no reason to. And it has such a clear meaning. Because there's nothing to misunderstand about mana once you get a vague idea of what the concept is. It's power. It's mm-hmm. power within you that you can use to do powerful things. Yeah. And Or if I, it isn't power within, it's power that you draw from somewhere that allows you to do powerful things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when I research a story like this, it makes me appreciate being human. Because being this dwarf on top of a giant's shoulders and using all these things I don't ever bother to comprehend... And, and maybe mana is the incarnation of this divine connection. Maybe it really is. And this Mercia Alenadi, he spent his entire life searching for it and didn't find it. But it is actually the word itself is the perfect example for the interconnectedness of the human race. And, and this is how it ends. This is how mana got into the video game world. We just don't know. We just don't know. We just know the rough path. But that's it. It's the human condition. Dude, you fucking blew me away this episode. Uh, like, I- I'm usually a lot more chatty, but like, I what do I even fucking say to that? Like, that's awesome. Like, I think that um, we had talked previously about doing episodes that were sort of non-traditional, and I still have some ideas for some that I think, you know, I may pursue in the future, and I think you had some you were talking about too. And, uh, but man, just... It's so interesting to me how I think you got it right that we just don't ask questions about like where things come from. And sometimes I like to, to torture Andrea and I'll be like, where, where did that expression even come from? Why do we even say that? I should be like, why would I know? Just Google it. And then I'll, I'll literally march over to the computer and I'll just Google it. Right. But think about when you didn't have that, right? Like yeah. how do linguists trace the origin of words when you know there's there's almost no record of certain time periods in human history and i man how fascinating it is to see this well also of course of course we've appropriated it to be something completely different right we've taken this religious term and said you know we're going to do all this stuff with it but just yeah. how fascinating that is that that we got from something so completely different in such a different time to yeah. a little blue bar with numbers on it in a video game. Yeah, just as a last side note, just to, to like, so some people who might not be super familiar with video games, um, to, to tell them some games that actually feature mana, because there's a lot of them. Like, we already talked about Magic the Gathering. Yeah. Do you, do, do you know another one? Oh, geez, Diablo. Um, Diablo, all Diablo parts have mana in it. 
Yeah. Um, so generally, you might not see the word mana, but you might see uh, MP. MP right which yeah. could either be mana points or magic points but it's still right. the same kind of idea that you're drawing from this innate reserve right and i know that like DD doesn't use mana but it does use both at least in newer iterations they're trying to to how do i want to put this make show the difference between like a wizard and a sorcerer in that a wizard does all of these rituals to invoke this power and a sorcerer yeah. has it innately right and the so contemporary of bonewitz wrote a supplement for dnd &E, &E, that changed the magic system from spell slots to mana which is called the arduin grimoire hmm. i figured that out how interesting yeah i mean just like there's it just depends on how specific we want to get with you know mana it's specifically mana um, you know, is much less, but still everywhere. But the idea of casting spells and points and, uh, you know, point systems where you can draw from some other otherworldly or innate magical power are like everywhere. And you almost can't have fantasy without them. Yeah. You know, there's also the, the mana series uh, made by Squaresoft. Oh, like Secret of Mana. Yeah. Yeah. Which went on from 1991 to 2014. Didn't that just uh, get a recent remake oh yeah there's a new one yeah right something I mean, like that still, yeah. and a few other games king's quest had mana 12's tale had mana which was a game that was published in 1983 all kind of top-down fantasy games call of cthulhu has mana the role-playing game hmm. yeah it does but i don't i don't know if it was in it from the start which because the first Call of Cthulhu was first published in 1981. Right. I, I, I couldn't find out if it already had mana within the rule set then. Yeah, I'm unsure. Hmm. And then there's a game called Dungeon Master, which also had mana, which was published in 1987, which is a bit like, if you know, The Legend of Grimrock, the game. Yeah. It's kind of a, a, a reiteration of that, just fancier. It kind of looked like that. Well, um, that's really cool. I'm really happy that you did this episode and this was very fascinating. Uh... I, I applaud you for finding a way to tie those disparate strings together into something coherent, because that's crazy. <laughs> so, Yeah, I'm glad it worked out. I think um, what I'm left with is the idea that, uh, you know, that, the, that these people in their own way influenced culture, and that culture... I'm, it's not like I'm giving culture sentience, right? Because it's not like that, or, or personifying culture, but then you know the cultural zeitgeist picked that up and it just became part of our vernacular right like that it just yeah. became a thing and it was like oh of course that's what that's what magic's called yeah of course right yeah. like obviously i i think that's the best you know cherry on the sunday with moria is that he never explains it and we may never know so yeah i tried to contact him as well but the email he used during the correspondence um does not exist anymore I can't find him. Königke is a ghost. He disappeared. Hmm. Well, he came back to the internet for one correspondence, and then he just was gone forever. In the event he's one of the four people who listen to this podcast that we <laughs> are dating, uh, shoot me an email at vegantylerttv at gmail.com, and we would be absolutely happy to hear from you. So, Okay, um, let's do some sources real quick. Yeah. I had a bunch of sources. First, the most important source that anybody who liked this 
should get into is a huge article written by a person in 2014 called Alex Golub, and it's called The History of Mana, How an Austronesian Concept Became a Video Game Mechanic, which was the first article I found about this, and it's a very well-sourced um, article that goes a bit deeper into how James Cook discovered the Austronesian region and um, goes a bit deeper into Elianada's life and into the occult business that was going on into, in Great Britain when Codrington came back. And it's a great article um, that I recommend to anyone interested in this topic. I also used an article called Mission and the Margins that is just about Codrington's life and his work. I used an article by Fred Turner, which is called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network and the Rise of Digital Utopianism from the Chicago um, University from the press of 2006. I used an article about the game of Moria and the correspondence with Koenigke, which he did about Moria to Moria France. And I used one German article um, published by the Evangelical Center of Education in Alexandersbad in Germany that was about Mercia Elianada's work and how he spread shamanism across the world. And that's about it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for this, Docs. This was great. I really, I yeah. truly enjoyed this episode. Nice. You know? I'm glad. Yeah. I guess take care, guys. Thank you to yeah. all of the people that like to hang out with us. And um, I hope you have a good day. Oh, hey, if you're in the United States, go fucking vote. It is important. Yeah. Okay. Go vote. vote. If you give a shit about having any kind of say over your life, go vote. Go vote. Don't listen to anybody who tells you you shouldn't. Go vote if you have not already. It is hyper important. And stay safe out there. Have a good day. Have a good one. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Bye.